If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, it also is printed in your bulletin and should be on the screens if they're working this morning. We're going to be reading the, the whole chapter of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, but before we get into the passage, I'd like for us to think about, and I want us to think about this for really a couple of weeks, is, is desires and expectations. Now, the truth is about desires that we all have them. And that often our desires feed into our behaviors and they feed into our expectations. And never is that more true than during the holiday season. Now, all of us, when it comes to the holiday season, we desire a very peaceful kind of Norman Rockwell sort of holiday experience. But we all know that often those desires are not met exactly according to our expectations. And when those desires are not met, our expectations are not met, then we often really get dissatisfied with a lot of things. As we were driving home, I was thinking a lot about this. We were uh, away for the holiday season, and then as, as I was driving home, our tradition has been uh, to turn on Christmas music when we drive home from uh, our Thanksgiving holiday. And so it's the first time we hear Christmas carols, and I know for some of you purists out there, uh, it is entirely too early for Christmas carols, and I understand that. Uh, but I started thinking on the words that we were hearing as we were driving home. There was nothing really else to do. And uh, I was thinking about desires and expectations, and you hear all that in the Christmas music that we listen to each year. We pray for peace on earth and, and goodwill towards men, and, and all of us have that in, inherent desire for those things, and, and it feeds into our expectations of what the holidays should really be about. And so it builds up these expectations in our mind. And then I remember a song that I heard uh, driving home called The Twelve Pains of Christmas. Has anybody ever heard this song before? The Twelve Pains of Christmas. And, and I forget all the words of it, but the, it, it's based on the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, but the chorus goes, uh, five months of bills that come out of the holiday season. And I thought, that's a little closer to reality than often the expectations and the desires that we bring uh, to the holiday season. So our story this morning, and really what our whole Advent series is going to be about as we uh, move into Advent next week, is going to be about these things called desires that we all have and expectations and how we desire those expectations to be met. And I think we can trace that very clearly in our passage this morning. So I'm going to be reading again from 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, really verses 1 to the end of chapter verses, verse 22. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. From being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them that the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for your presence with us. And thanks for your word that speaks powerfully to our hearts. Uh, We're mindful of the promise that as we reflect on your word, your spirit visits us and opens our eyes to see its truth. So we pray that as we look at your scriptures this morning, uh, that you would reveal to us your truth, not only the truth about ourselves, but the truth about the good news of Jesus Christ. So visit us here this morning. Speak to our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And so our passage is in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is really the story about God's unique relationship with one man. That man's name was Abraham. And God came to Abraham making promises, and God grew Abraham into a very big family, and that family grew into a great nation. That nation was uh, the nation of Israel, and God chose them uh, to be unique. He chose them to demonstrate what a relationship with God was was all about. And it wasn't as if God excluded all of the other nations. It simply was that God had chosen this family into a nation to become a special family, to have a special relationship with God. And if you read the Old Testament at all, you'll get to a book called Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, uh, it tells the story about how this great nation uh, had been enslaved to to King Pharaoh and how they cried out to God for deliverance, and He miraculously delivered them from their enslavement. If you read a little bit further, you come to the book of Joshua, and you see how God, in many ways, gave them a promised land, made good on the promises to Abraham, 
and gave them a promised land by routing all the other nations that were in that land. And one of the things that God commanded this nation to be was to be a theocracy, to be a people, to be a nation that was ruled directly by their relationship with God. And that was something that was supposed to make them very unique. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, this is how they functioned. If you read forward into the, to the book of Judges, they were to be ruled in this way, but they continued to, to find themselves in crises. They continued to, to find themselves into all sorts of uh, troubling places. And so God would send judges, and those judges would come and rescue them from whatever crisis that they were dealing with. But as part of this system of government, as part of this theocracy, the people were to be defined singularly by the law of God that was given to them by Moses. It was to be the thing that ruled the people. But they also were given prophets, and these were men selected by God who would receive messages from God that they would then need to communicate on to the people. And so the law would define these people. The word, from, uh, uh, the word of God come th- coming through the prophet would define these people. And Samuel was one of these very important prophets. He was one of these people who would receive the message from God and then need to communicate that to the people. And so in this system, there were really three sacred offices. Up until this point, the, the prophet was a sacred office, the priest was a sacred office, and now when we come to our passage, we see a new sacred office emerging for the people of God, and that is the office of the king. And one of the first things we learn about this passage is that the people of God had a very strong desire for a king. You see, for years, Samuel was the spiritual leader of God's people, and the people had looked to him for direction and guidance, and he represented the voice and the presence of God in their midst. But as time passed, what our passage tells us is that a new desire emerged for these people, and the elders came to Samuel, the prophet, uh, to communicate their new desire. Now, I don't have to tell you that, that people are very complex. We are complex people, and God's people are, were complex people. We're all a bundle of mind and will and emotion. Sometimes we can do really good things, but for bad motives. Sometimes we can do really bad things for good motives. And so it's very hard to reduce the, the human heart to black and white, very simple categories. And so when God's people come to the prophet of Samuel with this new desire and with this new request, they come with all sorts of mixed emotions and mixed motives. They're desiring a king for both really good reasons and really bad reasons all at the same time. And what I'd like to do is look at some of those reasons. One of the good reasons that we see, one of the good reasons that they were operating from was really a sense of injustice. They were, they were observing injustice, and they wanted a king to respond to it. Look at verse 3. It tells us that, that uh, Samuel's sons, yet his sons, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. 
See, what it tells us is that Samuel had two sons. One son was named Joel. The other son was named Abijah. And they had a practice of cheating people out of their money and cheating people out of their resources. They used whatever power had been given to them for all sorts of personal gain. They were oppressing others and looking out for themselves. They were, in many ways, politicians who cared more about their own benefit than the people that they were supposed to rule over. And so God's people observing this respond. In verse 4, it says this, All of the elders gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old. They don't mince any words for Samuel here. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. See, what they're doing here is they are responding to an injustice that they are seeing and feeling. And they wanted a king, a king who would bring justice, and a king who would bring benefit to all people. They wanted a king who would conduct himself justly and would rule the nation in a just way. And so, their desire for a king comes out of a sense of injustice that they are not only feeling, but they are observing as well. But there's other reasons too. They also want a king because they are desiring protection and leadership. If you look at the second half of verse 19, it says this, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, at this point, God's people are what many have called a kind of a very loose tribal confederacy. They're in very many ways fractured according to tribes, and they're divided because of this. And there's kind of no clear leader and no centralized sort of government. And to make matters worse, not only are they divided internally, but they're facing all sorts of pressures externally as well. Uh, The Philistine Empire was threatening them to their west, and they were much more unified and much stronger. You had the Ammonite Empire to the east, and they were much stronger. They were threatening as well. So you have these two rival kingdoms next to them, and here's Israel right in between feeling very fractured, they're feeling very weak, and they feel like they have no sense of identity as a people group. And so what did they want? They wanted someone who could bring them protection. They wanted someone who could bring them leadership and and a sense of identity. They wanted someone to move them from their current tenuous state to a place of security and stability. And friends, we want those things all the time. If you pay attention to sports here in Baltimore, you'll know that our baseball team here in Baltimore was terrible this year. I mean, woefully terrible. All of the problems came on, uh, uh, all, it seemed like overnight, and, and everybody in the world seems to know all the problems of our baseball organization here in Baltimore. But two weeks ago, what happened? Two weeks ago, we hired a new general manager, and all of a sudden, hope has sprung anew here in Baltimore. All our problems are now going to be fixed by this new general manager. All of our hopes and dreams are relying on this person to fix all of our biggest problems. 
You see, these sorts of desires are really everywhere. They happen in the sports world. They happen in the professional world. Think about all the organizations that think if we just get another CEO, then everything is going to be fixed. So we see these things everywhere, and we certainly see them in the political sphere as well. If we could just get a newly elected X, Y, and Z, then everything will be good. And you see, those desires aren't necessarily bad things. The desire for justice, protection, leadership, those are all good things. The desire for someone to lead for the good of the people over personal gain is a really good thing as well. We all want these things too. We're just like God's people in many ways. We want all the people who are in authority over us, and we always have people in authority over us, we want those people to lead with justice and with equity and with strength. You see, all those desires are good things. They are good desires. And I think God is even willing to recognize that with His people. Because if you look back all throughout the Old Testament up to this point, God had actually been talking about the role of the king for the people. He'd actually been talking about it for hundreds of years. He talked about it in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all talks about kingship. One of the promises that God even made to Abraham at the very beginning included promises of kingship. And if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, there's all sorts of laws and stipulations about having a king and the importance of kingship. And so what God is doing is he's recognizing that the desire for a king, a good ruler, is a very good thing. The desire for someone to lead with protection and strength and justice, those are all good things. And so if all those things are really good, then why does Samuel get so upset when the elders come to him asking for a king. Well, he gets upset with them because their desires are complex, and in many ways their desires had become disordered and they had become disoriented because just like us, they are complex human beings. You see, the the Scriptures tell us that all of us have desires. In fact, God created us to be desiring people. And much of what we do, as I said before, is driven not so much by our intellect or our reason, but much of what we do is driven by our desires. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be desiring people. They desired a right relationship with God. Uh, They desired a right relationship with the created order. They desired a right relationship with each other. But then the scriptures tell us that sin entered into the picture. And as soon as sin entered into the picture, their loves became disoriented and their desires became disordered. And friends, we are just like them. That has been true ever since sin entered the picture. You and I daily wrestle with all sorts of disordered loves and disoriented desires. We are no different than God's people. But poor Samuel, when they come to him, Samuel takes it personal. 
He thinks it's an indictment upon him and an indictment upon his leadership. And he cries out to God with all these feelings of rejection, feeling as if the people have rejected him personally. And so God tenderly comes to Samuel and he says, Samuel, actually, they aren't really rejecting you. In fact, they're rejecting me. They are rejecting me and my leadership. They no longer want to be a theocracy, a people who are led by the word of God. Instead, what they are wanting is a physical person to guide and to rule over them. You see, God is the one, not Samuel. God is the one who should have taken it personally. But instead, what you see God doing is instead gracious, graciously granting them their desires, even recognizing that their desires had been disordered. You see, part of God's grace is the recognition that He doesn't all wait for us to get our act together. Instead, He loves us in the midst of our complexity and our disordered desires. And so we see that largely all of their desires for a king are really bad desires, they're terrible desires. But the worst of them all we see several times throughout the narrative. The main reason that they wanted a king is because they wanted to be just like everybody else. They wanted to be just like the nations that were all around them. And they even say it in verse 4 and in verse 20. And in so doing, what they do is they reject God's plan for them. And in the process, they're ultimately rejecting God himself. You see, as God's people, they were, they were called to be unique, and that uniqueness was to be on display for all the nations to see. They were to be an example of a life-giving relationship with God, but they wanted none of it. Instead, they rejected that call. They wanted to be just like everyone else around them. They would rather listen to the voice of man than live by faith in their relationship with God. All they wanted to do was to assimilate to the prevailing culture around them. And friends, we all know exactly what those desires feel like. We all know the temptation to want to keep up with the Joneses, to, to just blend in with all those people who are around us. We all know the temptation to build our identity around the power structures of wealth and status rather than build our identity around our relationship with God. We all know the temptation to live by sight rather than to live by faith, the very thing that God calls us to do. We all know what it is like to be driven by these disordered desires. But friends, the beautiful and even scandalous thing is that God doesn't reject them even though they are rejecting him. And instead, what we see is he lovingly and tenderly moves towards them in grace. And he does the same for you and I. He steps into our mess. He steps into our complexity and he pours grace into our lives. He remains faithful to us even when we, just like God's people, are unfaithful to him. 
He doesn't reject us despite the many ways we reject him day in and day out. Instead, he operates towards us with great grace, with great love, and great patience. But that doesn't mean that we, we don't bear the consequences of our disordered desires from time to time. You see, when we are operating from this disordered paradigm, it means often that our disordered desires remain unsatisfied. And we see that in our passage here this morning as well. You see, Samuel comes to them and he comes with all sorts of warnings. He says to them that God is going to allow you to have a king, but that doesn't mean that all your problems are going to be answered overnight. In fact, what it may mean is that you find you have more problems. James K.A. Smith reminds us that the gods of the republic demand sacrifices too. And so what Samuel warns them is that you are going to get a king, but you have to realize that that king is going to want to take from you. In verse 11, it says, he will take your sons and daughters away in forced work. Verse 12, he will constrict your sons in military service and your daughters in forced labor. Verse 13 and following, he essentially says, this king will take all the best of what you have in taxation and it will often be more about his glory than it will be about your welfare. In fact, essentially what he says is, just as you are crying out to me today for a provision for a king, later on you will be crying out to me for deliverance from that same king that you are asking for. You want a king just like everyone else around you? Well, that is what you are going to get. And you think that if you just had that king, then your desires will be fulfilled, but ultimately those desires will remain unsatisfied because this king will all, always be about the taking when God the king is always about giving. And you see, friends, that really is the beauty of the gospel story, and it's the beauty of the Christmas story that we're about to really reflect on for the next couple weeks, and that is this, that God ultimately gives us a king who will satisfy our desires. You see, for the rest of Israel's history, and we'll look at some of these stories, for the rest of Israel's history, they're going to have lots of kings. A handful of them, only a handful of them will be good kings, and the remaining kings will be largely terrible. And it's a reminder that the warning that Samuel gives them here comes true over and over and over again throughout their history. But what you also see throughout their history is that all the while, God is hinting that a more perfect king, the ultimate king, will come. And when that ultimate king comes, he will satisfy all the deepest desires of his people. But even with the advent of that king that we see in, that, in the birth of Jesus Christ, in the Christmas story, even with the advent of that perfect king, the people ultimately didn't recognize him. 
They didn't recognize him because their desires had become so disordered with sin that they ultimately couldn't even see the true king when he arrived. And so what does the gospel remind us? It reminds us that our desires are not bad things, that God created us with, our, with desires, but it also tells us that our desires and loves have become disordered and disoriented. They are so disordered and disoriented that we don't even recognize the true king when he truly comes in glory. And so what do we do? Well, we need God to come. We need God to come and reorder our hearts because only when he comes and reorders our hearts will we ultimately recognize the true king. Only then will we recognize the true king that rules with perfect justice and peace and perfection. We'll recognize the true king who rules with grace and truth, the true king that doesn't reject his people even though they day in and day out reject him. You see, that true king was born that first Christmas to teenagers in a state of poverty. He was rejected, he was beaten, he was crucified, and ultimately he was raised from the dead on the third day, beating sin and death. Friends, he is the true king that our hearts really desire. And so they, so they the Lord hears our cry for that true king, and he gives us Jesus, the fulfillment of our deepest desires. Let's pray.